All right, so at the top of page 109, the sacraments of the New Testament in general. The first question, what is a sacrament in the New Testament? The answer, Philip Melanchthon gives this definition. It is a divinely instituted rite added to the promise given in the gospel so that it becomes a testimony and pledge of the promise of grace that is set forth and applied. All right, maybe even at a more rudimentary level. A sacrament comes from the Latin sacramentum, which is a translation of the Greek mysterion or mystery. So a sacrament is a mystery. You can hear the the language of sacra sacred. Um, It is a, a sacred thing, a sacred mystery. And what we're going to be looking at then are the, are the mysteries of the faith narrowly defined. So already, as I walked through with you, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and sometimes absolution, depending upon the definition. So the broadest possible de- definition of sacrament, one might point to St. Paul who says, that a man should consider us to be stewards of the sacraments of God. It's the same language of the mysteries of God. Well, the apostolic office, by extension the pastoral office, stewards of the mysteries of God or the sacraments of God, which one? Just those two? Just baptism and the Lord's Supper? No, all of them. So most broadly speaking, a sacrament is any mystery of the faith. So the Trinity is a kind of sacrament or mystery of the faith. You can know it, but you can never exhaust it. In fact, when you really get to a a fuller than basic understanding, you realize that there are some mechanisms built in where reason won't get you where you need to go. Faith will, but not reason. What God says, we simply believe and reassert. But in terms of comprehending it or working it out, that proves to be impossible. The hypostatic union, the personal union of Christ, one Christ with two natures, divine and human, that is a mystery or sacrament of the faith. So also is predestination. That's a mystery or sacrament of the faith. So also is how we come to the faith. So also is why are some saved and not others? We could go on and be, I mean, I'm just scratching the surface, really. Well, maybe a little more than scratching the surface. But basically, any article of faith you can think of, ultimately, is a kind of mystery or sacrament. That's in the broadest usage of the word. There's mysteries in the text of Scripture all all over the place. Now, as we narrow that down, you can see why, even in the medieval church, they settled on seven sacraments. So these are mysteries that really lead to a a kind of change in the life of the Christian and involve these kinds of biblical mysteries where there's something going on that's more than meets the eye. So let me give you an example. One of those seven sacraments or mysteries would be marriage. Well, that seems simple enough to me. Well, how about when God says that it is he who makes the two into one flesh? So at least even superficially here, there's a kind of mystery where two, a man and a woman, walk down the aisle. And at the end of the wedding, two, apparently to the eye, walk back down the aisle. But God says that he has made those two, in fact, into one flesh. So there's a kind of mystery there, something hidden to our sight and our reason, but God says that it is the case. All right, then from these sort of seven sacraments, really are things that God does to you, then you've got a narrow class of those, that include what's going to come next. And and that is that they're going to have a word that confers grace and a sign attached to it. So that's why 
Chemnitz is setting this up. He assumes that the pastors to whom he's speaking understand the wide definition of mystery and sacrament. They're, they're in all likelihood coming out of the idea of the sevenfold sacraments, and that's fine. Lutherans have no problem with seven sacraments as defined. But when you get down to a narrower definition of conferring the grace of God, that is um, benefiting you in your faith and trust in Christ, and you've got that tied in with a sign like water in baptism or bread and wine in the supper, you've got a unique class of sacrament, the sacraments proper. That's what we're looking at then, the sacraments of the New Testament in general. So you can see in Melanchthon's definition that Chemnitz here cites, divinely instituted rite. It has to be something dominical, something that comes from the Lord. And it is added to the promise given in the gospel so that it becomes a testimony and pledge of the promise of grace that is set forth and applied. So, again, this was just shorthand conferring, communicating the grace of God to the individual who receives it. All right, on to 215. And if you do have questions, I think they'll get clarified here in the next section. What things are required as essential parts to make a sacrament in the New Testament? The answer, two. First, an outward or visible element or sign in a certain outward ceremony or act ordained and instituted in the New Testament by Christ by a special word and express command and committed to the whole church to the end that it be used to the end of the world. Second, the word or promise of grace joined to the element in that act, namely that the sacraments were instituted by Christ for this purpose and use, that through them as outward means and visible testimonies, He wants to set forth, apply, give, confirm, and seal individually to those who use them in true faith the promise of grace, which is at other times proclaimed and offered in the gospel to all in general. All right, so in this second part, you've got a word and a sign, and that's typically the Augustinian definition of a sacrament in the narrow sense a word of sign. Now, not just any word, but a word that, yeah, of God's grace. So, and then, if you will, the first that he mentions is that you've got this outward sign or element in an outward ceremony or act ordained and instituted by Christ. So you really have this institution by Christ, word and sacrament, And you kind of need all three of those to have a valid sacrament. So I'll try to give you a concrete example. I know this stuff can be dry depending upon your constitution. If a child, uh, let's say say, uh, uh, two little sisters are in the bath together. Okay, they're like, you know, they're three or four years old or something like that. And they're splashing around and one of them gets to remembering church. And she stands up and says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you have water? Yeah, so you have the outward sign. Do you have word? And that kind of word that confers the grace of God. Yeah, you do. Is it a valid sacrament then? You're lacking the institution of Christ. You're you're lacking the way in which it's to be done. That's the first point, is that it's, it's this outward visible element or sign. Um, ordained and instituted in the New Testament by Christ. So the first thing is it needs to be according to the institution of Christ. And then it needs to have the word and the sacrament. And then it's a, the word and the sign. Then it's a valid sacrament. Make sense? Pastor. Yes. The last bit. Does this indicate that it actually becomes like almost express command and committed to the whole church to the end that it be used to the end of the world mm-hmm. yeah so now I'm looking at it as really ceremonial too mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I mean there is no there is no 
sacrament without ceremony, without rite. It's just of the essence. It's what it is. They point that little bit out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It kind of tells me, you know, look for the, you know, the, the, like the vetted out ceremony. I mean, we've had long discussions way back Mm -hmm. about. Mm Contemporary service that is not here anymore. Sure. Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing, you know. Right. Yeah. And that's where you know the the divine liturgy as such isn't adiaphora. The divine liturgy consisting of word and sacrament, and then what follows from that of human origin needs to be fitting and reverent and tie in. But no laws per se are made regarding those things. But this is the essence of the divine liturgy, which is not adiaphora. It's not um, indifferent to be taken or left according to context. Uh, It's mandated by Christ. It's his dominical command that you make disciples by baptizing and teaching. That's a dominical command. And then the dominical command in the Lord's Supper is where he says, this do. This do in remembrance of me, or this do as often as you drink it. Otherwise, it's just descriptive up to that point of something that Christ did. But then he says, this do in remembrance of me, or this do as often as you drink it. That's the dominical command and institution proper of the Lord's Supper. So yeah, you need a dominical command. Okay, well, we'll get ahead of ourselves a little bit. But just so we can kind of investigate the frame and not keel over with boredom, let's consider absolution. You need a dominical command or institution. You need a word that confers the grace and benefits of the gospel. And you need a sign, an external sign, in order to fit the narrow definition of sacrament as we're using it. So do you have a dominical command or institution? for confession absolution. Sure you do. He breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. There is a dominical institution of absolution and also with it, uh, retaining sins of those who do not repent, absolving the sins of those who do repent. And these two powers are sometimes called the keys. So you have the institution of the office of the keys. Hopefully this is taking you back to small catechism. And so we can check that box off, that you have a dominical command or institution. Does it confer grace? Absolutely. I forgive you your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is taking what Christ won on the cross and distributing it to you. That forgiveness that he won once and for all is being proclaimed to you present tense. That's a powerful word of God. It's entering your ear and your heart and when it's met with faith it cleanses that heart. So, uh, yes, it meets that criteria. Does it have an outward sign? Does it have an outward element? Not really. (laughs) I mean, in one sense, the pastor... (laughs) And some have tried to make that argument, but it's not so clear or concrete as water, which is absolutely necessary in order to have baptism, which is a washing, or uh, wine and bread, which are absolutely necessary in order to take, eat, and take drink. So in that sense, then, most are content to say, look, we're not going to quibble about this, but absolution really properly doesn't meet all three criteria, at least not as certainly as baptism in the Lord's Supper. That's why these become preeminent. And even, even Luther to this degree, if you read the uh, large catechism, now if you study the small catechism, you know that there are how many chief parts in the small catechism? Six chief parts in the small catechism. You remember what they are? Ten Commandments, Creed, the Our Father, Baptism, Absolution, and the Lord's Supper. Those are the six. When you go to the large catechism, you'd expect to see six chief parts, but you don't. You see the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Our Father, Baptism, and the Lord's Supper. What's missing? Absolution's missing. Luther in the large catechism, for the reasons we've been stating, collapses absolution under baptism. And says, when you repent of your sins and receive absolution, you're simply returning to your baptismal grace. Makes a lot of sense. And it even makes some liturgical sense, which is why in our congregation and many other congregations, 
uh, absolution is done near the baptismal font. You'll notice that I rather awkwardly step around behind the baptismal font and pronounce the absolution, a visual reminder that you are being returned to your baptismal grace. This thought just occurred to me, and while we're dealing with the concept of sacraments a little more broadly even than chemnitz is here, a really important thing to nail down, I think, from the outset, which is why I'm going to make the point now, is that the sacraments confer the grace and forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. That's essential to keep in mind. And if you put it in your mind as a kind of vertical reality, like an analogy, it's really, I think, the most helpful. So think of the cross. That's where forgiveness is won. Now, in baptism, what's happening to you? You are being so united with Christ that his death is your death and his resurrection is your resurrection. So it's taking the blessings and benefits of the cross and applying them to you personally. Does that make sense? Okay. And then at this level of analysis, that's what the absolution is too. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he says on the cross, and we communicate that forgiveness in the stead and by the command of Christ Jesus unto all who repent. It's a forgiveness that flows from the cross. It has its value in the present tense reception of that living word of God. What about the Lord's Supper? Same thing, even easier to see, I think. Because there you have his body and his blood separated. Take eat, this is my body. Take drink, this is my blood. And that, sac- that um, distinction between body and blood, separation between body and blood, is exactly the way the sacrifices were performed in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. So when you partake of Christ's body and blood, you are t- partaking of that sacrifice that he makes on the cross as high priest and as victim. He makes that sacrifice once and for all. You are partaking of that sacrifice. It is made present for you as God's gracious gift. So all of these sacraments, in the narrow sense of the word, flow from the cross. They distribute what Christ wins on the cross to you personally and individually. It's why you are baptized by name. The promises of God apply to you. It's why you are absolved, singular in the present. And it is why when... um, The Lord says, for you, and the sacrament of the altar, he requires all hearts to believe. Now, the you there is technically plural, but obviously it's true for each and every one who partakes. Okay, so that's really important to keep that in straight. straight. And if you have it in mind vertically, you'll escape a bunch of errors, uh, both of the Roman system which tend to view things by contrast horizontally. So the Roman system kind of works like everything you did before baptism kind of piles up, then you get baptized. Those sins that already occurred get wiped out. What about future sins? Not baptism. Okay? And then in their system, uh, you have to do penance for the sins that follow. But... Um, in, particularly, in particular, in the Roman system, we have an eye toward mortal sin, as they define it. Because if you're in mortal sin, you can't commune. When you go to communion in their system, you're being forgiven not your mortal sins, but your venial sins. And this is explicit in their own catechism. So you've got this horizontal, chronological system of, well, I just took communion, so what am I forgiven of? all the sins I committed up to this moment. But 15 minutes later, when I hop in the minivan, I, you know, with the Lord's Supper still on my breath, and uh, the kids are acting rowdy, and I lose my patience and say things I shouldn't say, I suddenly need new forgiveness, you see. So I've got to keep, continue on with this linear, chronological, horizontal system. Now, this is really all that American evangelicalism can conceive, is this Roman way of thinking, and then they reject it. Because they say, if it's by Christ alone, then it can't be by baptism. Or if it's Christ alone, it can't be absolution. Or if it's Christ alone, it can't be the Lord's Supper. None of these other things can save. And what you really then have articulated here are two different kinds of errors and opposing errors. Where the truth is right down the middle, that baptism does save, 
Same, and absolution does confer real forgiveness. And the Lord's Supper, as Jesus himself says, take eat and take drink my body and blood for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's a direct red letter quote from Matthew chapter 26. So Christ himself says it's for the forgiveness of sins. There's an error in seeing these things apart from the cross. There's an error in seeing them as, as kinds of chronological, pure chronological realities. So again, the vertical way of thinking about this, just a really helpful analogy or metaphor that to picture the cross where it's all one and then to see it being distributed in these different modes to us. So I know you're trying to get a comment in edgewise, so let me, uh, let me take pause and have you do that. Oh, okay. Um, you solved a mystery that I've had for probably... No, it's my oldest son. But for many, many, many years, we were attending a Lutheran church, and they were having a youth retreat, and the youth pastor served communion with Oreo cookies and Coca-Cola. Mm, yeah. And I always found it super offensive, and I just thought just disrespectful. Right. But now I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, he said it was communion, but it was not. Because exactly. those elements were not correct. Yeah, exactly right. And I, I, I knew in my heart it was wrong, and we pretty much left the church pretty soon after. We're not real Nazis about that kind of stuff, but there were other things. They were also questioning the virgin birth. Mm, yeah. In a I mean, I would think all, all of these things are things yeah. that we should be strongly opinionated yeah, on. Yeah. I do think so. That was the last drop. Yeah. Um, in fact, I even wrote the bishop at that point. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Um, yeah, this, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because this is a not infrequent and probably increasingly common reality in many uh, big box churches and liberal mainline churches. Uh, I would make the argument that by and large it occurs when people lose sight that it is the true body and blood of Christ. They lose sight that it is for the forgiveness of sins. And once you lose sight of these things, the idea of losing sight of bread and wine is, like, obvious. If we've already jettisoned these other ideas about the Lord's Supper, why, don't, why not jettison the idea that it be bread and wine? And so you get, what was it, Oreos and soda or something like this, yeah. I mean, I've heard of all this stuff, too. It should be uh, repulsive and repugnant to us. It, it demonstrates a complete misunderstanding of the sacrament, a complete disrespect of our Lord, of course. I mean... How would you feel if you were the Lord? You're speaking to your children. There's wine and bread. Did you mean pizza and root beer? No, wine and bread. Did, did you mean Oreos and Kool-Aid? No, wine and bread. I mean, it's, it's absurd. Of course, when he says the forgiveness of sins, and you say, no, not the forgiveness of sins. That was on the cross alone. Uh, you've already contradicted the Lord. Or when he says, this is my body, and you say, no, no, no. This symbolizes my body. Well, what does symbolize mean? Symbolized means is not. So think about that logically. Christ says, this is my body. Someone says, this symbolizes my body. Symbolizes means is not. Christ says, this is my body. They say it is not his body. So when you're correcting the Lord from the outset, telling him that it's not really his body and not really his blood, when he uses the language that it most certainly is. And when he says, for the forgiveness of sins, and you say, it's not for the forgiveness of sins, because my theological system won't fit that, You've already contradicted the Lord on the most important parts, what it is and what it does. All that's left is to contradict him on the form. So, bring in the Twinkies and uh, Sunny D, or whatever your preference is. When discussing this with the evangelicals, I've always enjoyed saying... Uh, regarding the presence of uh, presence of the body and blood, I always say, uh, "Good, you celebrate the absence of the Lord during the <laughs> communion. I'll celebrate the presence of the Lord." And it it usually ends the conversation. Right. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, I suppose now's, now's not the time to maybe, maybe tackle, uh, we'll, maybe we'll have opportunities as we go along, what the most common evangelical or American evangelical objections to the sacraments are and, and how we can uh, rebut those. One additional thing that you see while we're talking about the 
sacraments in general is you see the sacraments, which are gifts of God, right? That God would baptize you and so unite you with Christ that you're buried with him as he's laid into the tomb and that you're risen with him even as he's risen from the grave. Uh, that, that absolution, I mean, that is a divine absolution, receive the Holy Spirit, okay? So for what purpose? That they can forgive sins in such a way that it's valid not just on earth but also in heaven. And then likewise, um, no human power can affect the presence of Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. So inherent in all the sacraments is that they're God's action. Now, one of the great perversions that Satan has wrought in all kinds of different confessions is changing the sacraments from God's gifts to us into man's works to God. So most evangelicals today will say baptism is my act of obedience. That You get a real problem when the scriptures say baptism now saves you, and you go, well, it's my act of obedience. My act of obedience now saves me? That can't be right. And so there's just a general sense of, I don't know what to do with that scripture. And by the way, my pastor, if you're in an evangelical church, never preaches on it. Convenient. I listened to a sermon on Matthew 28, which is making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. And uh, 50 minutes was spent on discipleship and teaching, not one single word about baptism. Now, the absolution, confession absolution, were of course very early on transformed into man's work because absolution was replaced with penance. So I go and confess my sins, and the preacher, the priest, um, then assesses my guilt and applies a kind of temporal satisfaction. So 10 Hail Marys or 50 sit-ups or, well, no, I'm just teasing. Whatever, whatever uh, the quote-unquote satisfaction or penance is. But that transforms the gift of absolution into a work of man. How so the Lord's Supper? Well, twofold. In Rome, the Lord's Supper full-on became the sacrifice of the Mass. Not a gift that God is giving to us, but a full-on sacrifice that we present to God. So the work is completely transferred from Christ to us, the recipients, and now we are the ones sacrificing Christ and representing him to God as if it were all our work. But in the evangelical church, it's likewise been transformed into a work. What's the work in the evangelical doctrine of the Lord's Supper? Do this in remembrance of me. And so the entire thing is up to you and your remembrance and your meditation. And so uh, the, the wine and the bread, presuming they're there, which is a presumption, sadly, in this day and age, presuming they're there, are the, just simply there to help you as object lessons, I guess, because bread somewhat looks like flesh and wine somewhat looks like blood. They're just object lessons to help you remember Jesus in your heart. And so the whole thing is internalized into your remembrance before God. So there is, uh, you'll find none of this in, in the scripture, none of this emphasis that baptism, absolution, or the Lord's Supper are somehow our works unto God. And again, if, the, if you did find that, you got a problem. If you think that the Lord's Supper is all your remembrance and it's just your remembrance, that's the heart and, of the Lord's Supper, then when Jesus says, for the forgiveness of your sins, how is that forgiveness of sins gained? By your remembrance. So you end up destroying the whole evangelical system and the heart and core principle itself, which is Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. So only, and I'm sorry to say this, only in the Lutheran Church and the Lutheran Confession do you have the right doctrine on these things. It's, it's literally the only place. Okay, I see some hands popping up, so please. Yeah. So I'm thinking of God sent this to Israel, and it, it kind of brings things into sharp focus. And so God tells Moses, make this bronze serpent, and all who look at it will be saved. 
is the people were saying, well, what if I look at that stick over there instead? Or how about if I do that? I mean, it would be ludicrous that they'd even do that, but if they did, they would perish, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, God um, appointed a particular means for relief from that judgment of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's exactly right. Was there another hand? I, thank you for bringing that up. Those are Old Testament precursors to the sacraments. Mm-hmm. No, I don't I mean, say that. Because Scripture says. Although everyone in heaven is ultimately a Lutheran. No. <laughs> I just teasing. And it just says if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and died for your sins, you will be saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the. Um, do you remember where Satan first attacked? Uh, this wed the two comments together. I appreciate both of them very much. Do you remember when, where Satan first attacked our race? At the tree. Yeah. The tree is, in a very real sense, a sacramentum, a mystery. Why? Because Eve looks at the fruit and sees that it is good for food. And it even has the look in her enlightened, pre-fall, pre-sin, pre-distorted eyes. It even has the look like it will give wisdom. So it looks in every way good. And yet God has said, it's death. So already you've got your eyes and your ears contradicting each other. You've got God saying, Don't eat of this. Eating of this is sin. Eating of this is death. That's exactly where Satan attacks is the world's first sacrament. The first word of God and the first sacrament of God are one in the garden. Now, if if you know anything about God, you know he likes symmetry. And he likes to write things that are wrong. So nothing he does is arbitrary. If the way we fell was through a tree, how are we going to be restored? Through a tree. So you have, we fell by a tree in the garden, we're going to be restored by the tree of the cross. Now, particularly, how did we fall? By eating from that tree. And by eating from that tree, we sinned, and that sin brought death. Now, if we have been restored now by the tree of the cross, what is the fruit of that tree? Christ hanging there, his body and his blood. To eat of the fruit that hangs from the new tree, the tree of the cross, is what? Not sin, but forgiveness. That's why Jesus says, eat and drink for your forgiveness. Is not death, but is life, unless you eat the body and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Now think of the tree in the garden. It looks good for food. It looks like it will give wisdom. It looks like it will make one God. But God says, don't, it's death. What about the cross? God says, take and eat from that fruit. You will have forgiveness, life, and salvation. But how does that fruit look to us? Like the worst possible thing. It's a tree that looks like death, but it brings life. It's a fruit that looks like cannibalism and horror and nothing else, but God says it's for your forgiveness. You see, the whole project is symmetrical, and the Lord's Supper is simply Genesis all over again. And you are brought to the foot of the tree, and Satan is there telling you, oh, no, 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 no. It's not this, it's not that, it's not the other. Did God really say he meant symbolize? There's no forgiveness, there's no life. You're not going to live if you eat this. You're not going to be saved if you eat this. You're not going to be forgiven if you eat this. Don't eat this. Let's go over here and munch on some uh, Cheetos and Coca-Cola. We'll have that as our sacrament instead. How's that sound? And it'll be all about you and your remembrance. Just stay away from eating The bread that is his body, the wine that is his blood, the fruit that hangs from the cross. Don't eat that. Why? Because he knows that that's where it's undone. He knows that that is, that you are now in the presence of that tree of his cross, 
receiving his body and blood, you are now put in the place of Adam and Eve, but instead of being unbelieving as they were, you now believe. And the whole project of Satan is undone. His head is crushed in that very moment, just as God promised. His head is crushed when you believe what God says over and against your eyes. Just like Eve failed to believe what God said and believed her eyes, believed her reason. So we're called to reject our eyes, reject our reason, believe, and thus be restored. Okay, so that's the symmetry going on there. Yes, sir. We've talked in here before about the two-stage evangelical uh, way of being saved, where they preach the gospel to recruits, and then once you become a member, all of a sudden it's back to law and what you do and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. things. To me, that, that switchover is, I would think, would be very awkward. Yes, and it's a kind of, I think, I think that in that switchover, then, the, since you're switching in that system, I mean, I, I once heard a, a very, and I've mentioned this to you before, but I once heard a very beautiful sermon. I mean, just absolute sweet um, call for repentance, absolute fantastic proclamation of Christ and the free forgiveness of sins. And the preacher said, now that's for all of you unbelievers, I almost got into a car accident. My steering steering wheel almost just involuntarily went off. Uh, He said, now for you believers. And it was just, you've got to clean your act up. You've got to do X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so then I think that that articulates what you're saying, that very commonly in American churches today, um, we assume that if people have come to Christ, then Christ is no longer for them. It's all about you and about what you're doing. And then the sacraments just fold into that. The sacraments are just more stuff for you to do. They're just divine ordinances, just divine laws. You have to believe enough to be baptized. You've got to be baptized. Maybe you should be baptized again. Maybe you should really show your obedience and allegiance by being baptized a third time. Oh, you changed churches? Be baptized again. It's all your work. It's all your act of obedience. Um, penance and evangelicalism just looks different. I think it's listening to the drum set. That's probably what the... <laughs> In worship. I'm just teasing. <clears throat> and you've got... Uh, You've got, um, then the Lord's Supper is all about your remembering. Your penance actually in that system is, is your Sunday morning sermon because you're going to listen to the sermon and the sermon is supposed, is, is to do exactly what satisfaction in the technical sense is supposed to do. Satisfaction in the technical sense is to be a reparation of the soul. This is the Roman Catholic doctrine. So you're actually healing what you damaged. It's, um, it's analogous to like if you eat... Uh, way too much Captain Crunch, you need to do what to undo that? Get on the treadmill. You're healing yourself of the sin you've done. That's the, that's the nature and essence of satisfaction. So how in the evangelical system do you heal yourself of where you're failing? You go listen to the next seven-step sermon or you buy the 12-step book or you... So that's the real penance. And now the Lord's Supper in evangelicalism, of course, is just truncated to your own remembrance, as we said, and, um, and this functions as law, too, because it's just all you and your remembering and your doing, like the twice a year you actually take it in many of these churches. Okay, so then if you just have obedience and you just have the Christian, not Christ, or Christ as your example, but not as your Savior, and that's all you have, um, there's still going to be a vacuum there. Because you're not going to feel close to God. Because you've, reject, because you've rejected the way that God promises to come to you. In baptism, in absolution, in the preaching, in the Lord's Supper. These are the ways that God gives himself to you. Now, if you reject that, you're far away and you have no way to get to God. So you've got to, that vacuum is going to get filled in. And it gets filled in in other communions. I mean, we could talk about how that gets filled in in um, Rome with Mary and the saints and other kinds of uh, ascetic practices. Uh, Likewise with the East, with Mary and iconography and various ascetic practices. In American evangelicalism, we'd never do anything that hard. It's kind of hard to when you've got your $7 latte in the movie theater seat with you in the big box uh, worship event, worship experience. So what fills in the vacuum and void there is precisely what I mentioned a moment ago, the music. 
In fact, if you listen to the worship leaders, they'll tell you that's what you're do- they're doing. We are going to uh, fill this place with the Holy Spirit. We, that's the job of the sacraments. We are going to lift you up so that you can encounter God. We are going to have a spirit filled. Of, and the entire design of the music, which, by the way, of course, this is when you, should, you really should evaluate, evaluate it sociologically as well, because you get the same kind of euphoria, the same kind of communion and unity with other people, the same sense of divine awesomeness, at a football game, or at a rock concert, or at a rave, or at any other event where everyone is, is united around a shared goal or purpose, and the feelings are being manipulated by something, or some things, the whole community, into this sort of ecstatic experience or fervor. So that is then the new sacrament of most of American evangelicalism, is the thumping drums, the crooning voice, the gyrating woman, the guy in his uh, flannel shirt, all the perfectly manicured facial hair uh, and, and uh, perfectly imperfect hairdos, all designed to rev you up in the spirit and give you the experience of proximity with God. All right, so we've done that analysis. Now, what to be a little more charitable, um, how does the American evangelical mind work? It works like... Okay, Christ alone. That's what I've been taught. So then you pick Christ against baptism. Christ saves. Baptism can't save. Well, what about this scripture that says baptism does save? I don't know. Uh, Christ alone, not absolution. Well, what about this verse that talks about absolution, that talks about forgiveness? I don't know. Christ alone, not baptism. Christ washes away sins. Well, what about this verse that says... Rise, be baptized, and have your sins washed away. I don't know. The same thing happens not only with Christ alone, but with faith alone in the evangelical. Well, it's faith alone that saves. So if it's faith alone, then baptism can't save because faith saves. And so they pit faith against baptism. It's faith alone that saves. So I don't need no stinking absolution from no stinking sinner. Look at that guy up there. Who does he think he is? I've got faith that forgives my sins. And likewise, then, faith in the, rejects the Lord's Supper. It's like, hey, faith alone, I don't even need the Lord's Supper. <laughs> what, is, what is that bread and wine for? To help me remember? Look at this. Watch. I'm remembering without them, all by myself. Okay? So there's a pitting of Christ against the sacraments, either or, and a pitting of faith against the sacraments, either or. The beauty of the Bible is that once you've got these, once you've got these false dichotomies and these false... Um, mutually exclusives, eliminate in your mind, or at least you're willing to wipe them out and gain a fresh slate, you'll realize that all of these pieces fit together in a way that's completely non-contradictory. Start at the top. It is Christ alone who wins the forgiveness of sins once and for all. It is that gift of forgiveness, life, and salvation that is given to you in baptism. So baptism saves because it's a vehicle It's a distribution of what Christ has won. Same thing for absolution. It's a vehicle and distribution uh, for what Christ has done. Same with the Lord's Supper. That's why we call these things the means of grace, because they are the means, the vehicles or distributions by which God gives grace. Uh, The Book of Concord tends to prefer means of the Spirit. This is how we become Spirit-filled, by receiving these means that are, again, Christ won. Now, how are these things received? By faith. By faith alone. And if they're not received by faith, even though they're perfectly valid, they have no benefit. So you can be baptized, you can be absolved, you can receive the Lord's Supper, but if you don't have faith, then even though these things are valid and given to you, they have no benefit. So you can see then vertically it all flows from the cross of Jesus Christ alone through the sacraments, which are what he instituted for his church to be received by faith. Once you see that whole picture, you see how it works, and guess what happens to all the contradictions? Gone. And guess what happens to all the fear about certain Bible passages? Uh, gone. So, again, I am, uh, this is one place where I've examined every other alternative, 
and compared it to the scriptures, and I can say without any shadow of doubt that the Lutherans have this right in a way that no other communion on earth has right. Yes, please. Oh, I'm sorry. John's been waiting. We'll get you. Yeah, we'll get you next. Yeah, this is a more like a pastoral um, question. Um, how will you counsel someone who is dealing with addiction, who daily, daily re- returns back to their sins? And often I even heard people saying as part of, you know, you need to do this work to address that addiction before you can even begin you know, your, your, your journey with Christ. So mm-hmm. I just wonder what your thought may be on that. Yeah, it's with the caveat that it's difficult talking in blanket terms. Nonetheless, I'm confident to say that no, Christ would have you participate, even if one is addicted um, to whatever, uh, whatever grievous sin it may be, um, Christ would none, that, that's why he gives his sacraments. It's because we're sick and we need healing. When he's the physician of our souls, Christ the good physician, he never heals us in this life like, okay, there's your healing, it's done. You don't need me anymore. That's not the kind of physician he is. He's not, he's not the kind of physician we have in uh, early life. Remember those days? You'd go to the doctor and he'd be like, Wow, you're amazingly healthy. Grab a sticker and a toy on your way out, and you'd feel all good. That was a long time ago. <laughs> Increasingly, as we age, it's less, less smiley, less good news, and uh, certainly the, an absence of lollipops and stickers, more like medications and dietary restrictions. Okay, but... But as we grow older, we become more dependent upon our physician and we go see him more or her more and more often. And I think that's, a, that's an analogy for how Christ is, that the more we realize we're sick, the more we should draw near to him. And we realize that he's healing us, healing us, healing us, healing us, and the final healing happens in the resurrection of our body. But until that, we'll realize we need him more and more. So all that to, to properly frame then, whether you're dealing with sin in general or a kind of specific habitual or besetting sin doesn't make that much of a difference. Christ is the, physician, the healing physician of both. And so we draw near and receive his sacraments because that is the very medicine by which we will be healed in this life or in that which is to come. The hope is for healing in this life. He doesn't always grant that, or maybe more accurately, we very often refuse that. But that doesn't preclude us from the kind of eternal and everlasting healing that he gives as we remain in faith. So, uh, who is worthy and well-prepared to go to the Lord's Supper? It's taught in many churches in America that you have to get right with God. That's what makes you worthy and well-prepared to go to the Lord's Supper. But of course, the catechism understands Jesus much better than American Christianity. Because the catechism says, who is worthy and well-prepared? The one who has faith in these words, for you, for the forgiveness of sins. The catechism echoes Jesus' words, and he says, for you, for the forgiveness of sins. If you've got everything all cleaned up and you're worthy, you don't need what he's dishing out. Because the only thing he's dishing out there is himself, his body and blood for you for the forgiveness of sins. So whoever is worthy and well-prepared says, I am a sinner and I need Christ's forgiveness. The worthy and well-prepared isn't the one who says, okay, I've got rid of enough of my sins. Now I feel like I can go up there and keep my head on straight. (laughs) No. Remember the parable Jesus tells of two men who go into the temple? We know the Lord's Supper is the holiest of holies in the new true temple uh, because it's his body and blood. Now, he goes up to the temple, the Pharisees, thank God that I'm not like this other man. I've got it pretty much put together. And then you've got the other man who comes and can't even look up, and he says, make atonement for me. Have mercy on me is often the English translation, but it's, it's make atonement for me. Who goes down to his house justified? Christ says, not the former, but the latter. So when we go to the Lord's Supper, like, oh, yeah, 
Thank you that I'm not like other men. I finally got it all cleaned up. I've been done with whatever addictive sin it is for 24 hours, a week, three months, three years. I'm finally worthy to go to the Lord. I'm not like other men. Uh, That's not where you want to be. But rather, whatever state you're in, whether you're, you're clean, quote-unquote, for uh, two minutes, 24 hours, 24 days, 24 years, we come with the same attitude to the holiest of holies, and we say, make atonement for me, a sinner. And he does. So there are many other prayers that are important and tied into the liturgy of Holy Communion that he would also strengthen us and preserve us that he would deliver us. So those are tied in with the Lord's Supper too. It's not an acquiescence. It's not like, okay, I'm a sinner and I just acquiesce and I'm going to go receive forgiveness. Um, No, we pray, while even while we're receiving that forgiveness, we pray for strength and we pray for deliverance. And that's where it's really important too because when you receive the body and blood of Christ, you are receiving, as the church fathers call it, the medicine of immortality. But in a very real sense, Christ unites himself with you. His strength is your strength. That's his body given. His blood is your blood. The life is in the blood. His life is your life. That gives you perseverance. That gives you newfound strength. That gives you deliverance and the potentiality for deliverance. So those are things we also want to go to the Lord's Supper with. Not just, I'm in the negative, bring me back up to neutral, but I'm in the negative, forgive me, and bring me beyond where I was before. Our, lit- our liturgy of Holy Communion is filled with prayers like that. So, by the way, is confession absolution. Those who want to do better. It's one of the diagnostic questions. Do you want to do better? Are you sorry for your sins, and do you want to do better? Yeah, I want to do better. This absolution is for you, and may it strengthen you unto that end. Absolutely. Okay, was there another? Yes, please. So I still don't have an answer to my question. Oh, okay. We understand Did what I the dodge Lutheran it? distinct is. Yeah. But it's almost easier to talk with an atheist than it is to talk with someone that says, well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Mm-hmm. He forgave my sins. He forgave my sins. And I'm going to heaven. That's all I need. It's like the ten virgins, you know? Yeah. But yeah. so what do we say that could be meaningful? Yeah, I suppose in the best case scenario, we probably should then determine to spend most of our time with the atheist. Because I agree, I agree with you that it's easier working with a blank slate than somebody who's been filled with nonsense. It's also why, it's easy, it's why Jesus points to little children. It says, unless you turn and become like them. I mean, little children are like, wow, Jesus died for me? I love it. Great. <laughs> You know, oh, that's the Lord's body and blood? That sounds weird. How do you know so? Oh, because Jesus says it right here. Well, if Jesus says it, I believe it. I mean, that's little kids. That's what they do. If you've ever taught little kids, if you've ever talked with them about this, that's what they do. Even the most diehard skeptics of them go, yeah, I don't believe that. I don't believe it's Christ's body and blood. Okay, okay, let's open our Bible. Let's go look. What does he say? Well, how can it be? Well, yeah, but do you believe what he says? Yeah, I've got no other choice. You know, it's just, it's beautiful. Christ says, unless you, he says to his disciples, unless you turn and become like these, you will not enter the kingdom. So there's the, there's the admonition from Christ himself to become like little children in regard to these things, to simply believe the word and let our theological systems be damned. And I think that that, by the way, is thoroughgoing. <laughs> that doesn't have just to do with the sacraments. That has to do with everything. If our theological systems don't fit the word of God, guess what's going to Guess what's going to give? Yeah, our theological systems. So, right, you may only be able to get so far with many Christians, especially if they've been in that system for a long time. You can gently, in a loving way, try to poke holes in that system, try to make the case. At the end of the day, I suppose we have to give thanks to God that they are Christian, that they believe in Christ for their salvation. And then in regards to the other things, we have to kind of wipe the dust off our feet in a microcosmic way. Yeah, absolutely. And replacing it with all kinds of nonsense and garbage. I mean, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's an astonishing thing, you know. It's, a, it's an astonishing thing. The, the joy is that when we get to heaven, we will have the fullness of the sacraments, the fullness of Holy Communion. Um, you see uh, 
I mean, obviously, you see in Revelation that the entire throne of God is surrounded by the sea, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. You remember this? I mean, what is that glassy sea but the waters of holy baptism? The one who sits upon it has the, the rainbow, the rainbow sphere around, so the waters and the rainbow combined, just like Peter says of the, uh, of the flood, that the flood, while it destroyed sinful humanity, it actually saved Noah and seven others. And so that same water, that same rainbow and grace of God now save us through the waters of holy baptism. Yeah, so, and then you get on to the, you get into the central revelation of scriptures in, in heaven, and Christ is at the center, and he is the lamb. Paul says he is our Passover lamb. A Passover lamb has two jobs, to be slain and to be eaten. And his blood put not on the doorposts of our, of our houses, but put on the doorposts of our bodies, of our lips. And so even when you get to heaven, you're going to find that it's deeply sacramental. It's entirely sacramental. The realities of heaven are sacramental realities. This is the final revelation of God in this whole creation. It's why we're in the last days and we'll be in the last days until he, until he returns. We shouldn't sweat that in the least. Because we, are, we have been given the very last things, the penultimate things, until the ultimate things come. And the penultimate things lead us into the ultimate things. So perfect communion with God. So all of that stuff is, uh, is to come. And so, yes, it is tragic that people through their unbelief and through false teaching are missing out on so many of the gifts of God in the here and now. By his grace, they'll receive the fullness of those with us in heaven. So we can, be, we can comfort ourselves with that. You know, um, you get this whole, I've got like a minute left, and so let me just kind of close with this thought because it can be helpful especially for those who might be listening and, and trying to wrap their mind around all of this. A lot of uh, American evangelicalism is so focused on having a relationship with Jesus, which I guess is better than most of popular Roman Catholicism, which is having a relationship with your patron saint or your guardian angel or Mary. So I guess I'd prefer have a relationship with Jesus. But a lot of this relationship with Jesus talk is indistinguishable between the talk of having an imaginary friend. He walks with me, he talks with me, he agrees with all of my politics and thoughts. That's not Jesus, and that's not a relationship with him. That's an imaginary friend. The way that Jesus relates to us is exactly as the scriptures say, that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. How would it be if uh, you're, you married ladies, you can tell me, how would it be if you asked your husband, do you love me? And he said, look, I told you I loved you on our wedding day. That's sufficient. No more. I gave it to you there. If you don't believe I love you, that's on you. That's analogous to saying, how do you know that God loves you? Well, Christ died for me on the cross 2,000 years ago. That's where he said, I do. Okay. Does he say he loves you any other times, any other ways? Nope, that's it. Just then. That's absurd. Christ loves us as a bridegroom loves his bride by washing us of our sins. A perpetual daily washing in holy baptism. That there be no spot or wrinkle. But not only does he love us this way, but think about a loving husband to his wife. He speaks kindly and lovingly to her. He embraces her and hugs her. He kisses her. So there's all these modes and expressions. Is it a different love than that love he announced to her on their wedding day? No, it's the same love expressed over and over again and expressed in time. That I do of Christ takes place on his cross and then he hugs us in the waters of holy baptism. He speaks loving words to us in his absolution. He kisses us in his supper. And that is the true, quote-unquote, relationship we have with Christ, our bridegroom. And it is the same love of the original I do, the original marriage on the cross, now communicated to us in time over and over again. And that is objective and biblical and true. No imaginary friend required. 
No book, what was it, Jesus Calling, where it's an entire book filled of imaginary interactions with Jesus, who also, by the way, proves to not be a very biblical Jesus. Interesting how that works. When you literally have a bridegroom objectively telling you his modes of affection and welcoming you into that affection, welcoming you into the marriage of, of his love and his union for all eternity. So that's the way the sacraments function, ultimately. All right, that's it. The Lord be with you.